Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to episode 41 of Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yacono, a managing director with MLA Advisory Services. My guest today is Dr. Brian Yu, who is a well-regarded and very experienced sports psychologist. Dr. Yu did his undergraduate work at the University of California, Irvine, where he got a BA in psychology and social behavior. He got his master's at Cal State Fullerton with an MS in clinical psychology, and he obtained his PhD in counseling psychology with a specialty in sport performance psychology from the University of North Texas. Dr. Yu works with all sorts of athletes and performers and other professionals. Dr. Yu, welcome. Good to have you today. Yeah, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Can you give the audience a little bit of flavor about you and, and, and what you do? And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the techniques and tools and things you do with athletes that maybe relate to how lawyers can become more resilient and optimal performers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess I, I could say I wear two hats. I'm a, I'm a licensed uh, clinical psychologist in um, Maryland and Virginia, um, as well as a sports psychologist. Um, so being a licensed clinical psychologist and a sports psychologist means that um, I can work with the broad spectrum of what um, individuals, whether they're athletes or non-athletes, performers or non-performers, I can work on the spectrum of things from all the way to the mental health side of things and then all the way to the other end where we regard that as like mental performance issues. Um, and so that gives a lot of flexibility if like, you know, someone might be coming to work with me um, for, for purely maybe a performance concern. Like maybe they're they're just having a tough time dealing with the pressure at work or the pressure in their sport. Um, and sometimes it's just purely performance, but sometimes we also may find that there are a lot of other mental health concerns that are going on that are impacting performance. Like maybe um, depression or anxiety, uh, stress management, uh, relationship issues. And so, um, so I have the, the ability to also address those and then go back to the performance stuff when, when needed. Um, so you cover a broad spectrum, really, of what you would call traditional psychotherapy and then sports performance um, um, type yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, techniques and tools, for lack of a better word. And uh, how often do you find that in your practice that those issues intersect? Um, pretty, pretty often. Um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I've had to put a number to it. Um, maybe like 70% of the time. 70 70% of the time, there's a mental health component as well as a performance component. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean like that the person will qualify for like a mental health disorder in the DSM. Um, but we can, you know, I can see like, there are just like those where personal life and mental health well-being kind of bleeds into mental performance. And when you have a situation like that, what is your sort of operating model for addressing um, when those sort of issues bleed into performance, whether it's um, a performing arts performer or a, an athlete or, or anyone really? Yeah, you know, and I, I don't know if like the way that I practice really changes drastically, whether it's mental health versus mental performance. And, and I think, you know, one thing that I, I commonly talk about is like the skills 
um, that we talk about in mental performance, a lot of that can be applied to um, areas outside of sport, including mental health. Um, but I guess in general, not to say that this is focused more so on, well, I guess this is more mental health, but in general, like the framework that I come from is through a type of, you know, in, in the psychology biz, we call this theoretical orientation, but really it's like the type of um, therapy that you that you practice. And for a lot of people, they, they're eclectic, they use multiple types of therapies. Um, but for me, like my main theoretical viewpoint, the theoretical orientation is a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, also explain that? Yeah, yeah. Also known as ACT. Um, so, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy is a, they call this like a third wave of uh, CBT, which most people are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so third wave in the sense that it draws um, from CBT, um, but it has certain nuances that are different from it. Um, if you, if for any of the listeners are also aware of like dialectical, dialectical behavior therapy, that's also considered a third wave of CBT. Um, so ACT specifically um, focuses on, you know, the keywords there, acceptance and commitment. So big word there, acceptance. So helping people um, understand that there are certain things that, that, that cannot be controlled. And a lot of the focus is on, let's say for anxiety, let's use that. If someone's coming in to see me for anxiety, um, you know, anxiety doesn't feel good. And maybe the go-to instinct is like when something doesn't feel good, we, we push it away. Um, we try to get rid of it. And so conventional wisdom might think like, okay, therapy is here to um, get rid of that anxiety, reduce the anxiety. Um, and and I in ACT, that is part of the plan, but it's more of like a secondary goal. The main goal is to work on um, acceptance of anxiety and that viewing anxiety is not necessarily the problem, um, but it's more about your relationship with anxiety that causes um, the suffering with it. Um, and so there's a lot of work that goes into like understanding how, how, why emotions, even if they're uncomfortable, why they're, why they can be normal, why they can be, why they have a right to be there. Um, That's an interesting perspective because um, we find in the legal profession that there's a, a sort of bias towards fix yourself, push away those feelings, um, and, and somehow, quote, get yourself together. And I think what you're suggesting is that these aren't stressors that can be blocked out, but you have to forge a new relationship with them. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, a lot of times it is. And, um, you know, for example, like a, even with like athletes, like a, maybe a common thing that like, let's say it's like the first, the first game of the season and understandably so they're feeling a lot of stress and pressure. Um, and so, you know, I, all the athletes come to me and say like, what do I do with this, with this pressure? Like, how do I get rid of it? You know, I don't, I don't want this during my first game. And, and I like using this metaphor. And by the way, ACT um, uses a lot of metaphors and hence, so I use a lot of metaphors. Um, so I use this. Well, we metaphor. love metaphors on this podcast. I'll <laughs> tell you that right now. Oh, great, great. Um, so I, I like to use this metaphor of like a home invader. Um, so like, imagine, you know, you, you know, you're at home and you're, you're in like your room and you're doing something that's meaningful to you, whether that's like working on a project, maybe catching up on your favorite book or favorite television show, um, hanging out with family and friends. 
And then you decide like, oh, I need to go get a glass of water. And then, so you, um, you go down the hallway and um, when you go in the hallway, you see this person in, um, in the hallway. And so maybe your immediate reaction is like, oh no, this is a home invader. And with a home invader, you know, there are typically kind of two main responses we might do. One is we, we either try to fight the home invader um, or we try to hide or run away from the home invader. Um, and, you know, either of those could be helpful, the best options at that time. Um, but at the same time, while you're fighting the home invader or while you're running away from the home invader, you're not, you're no longer engaging in the activity or the action that was important and meaningful to you. So, you know, if we can rewind that for a second and go back, you know, you're in your room again, doing that meaningful thing, you go into the hallway and you see the same person, but instead of registering them as a home invader, maybe this time you register them as, oh, this is my annoying roommate. And this roommate, I don't love this roommate. They are annoying, but at the same time, they have a right to be here. They pay rent. It's, it's okay that they're here. And so maybe this time when you see them down the hallway, you might just give them a little bit of a head nod, just say, hey, how's it going? And then you can go on your way, get your glass of water, and you can get back to doing the thing that's important to you. So how this all then relates to like that athlete dealing with pressure at the, you know, before the first game of the season, um, you know, being able to view that pressure as this is like an annoying roommate rather than this home invader that you have to spend all this time and energy to trying to stuff down or get rid of or hide or mask. Um, and so part of that process is having them like look at like why, why is it maybe normal? Uh, why is it? Why does it, why does pressure have a right to be here? And then hopefully they can understand that like, well, like I'm feeling excited and, and I want to do well and I care about how I perform. And so when they can view it that way, it makes a little bit more sense why pressure is here. And so even when pressure is here, they can perform alongside it without- It's it an interesting like concept, it. perform alongside the pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But sort of kind of concomitant with that is, that they are ultimately wanting to do something that they enjoy and want to thrive at, right? Yeah. Although I would make a small tweak to it, not necessarily okay. something you would enjoy, um, but something meaningful. And the, the reason right. I clarify that is, you know, like for example, like career, like in work, like sometimes work is just not simply enjoyable, um, but maybe you're doing it because it's meaningful. Like maybe even though the work might be hard, you know you're helping someone and that's meaningful to you. Um, yeah. That's an, that's, an interesting, um, that's an interesting perspective. So you accept the reality or the pressure that it's there. You acknowledge that it has a right to be there. And then you recharacterize how you think about it so that you can do the meaningful things that you would like to do. Yeah, yeah, in a nutshell. Uh, so when you have, um, when you have a, an athlete that's in, you know, highly competitive program, let's say, and they're fighting to keep their starting job or fighting to excel, and it's not a talent issue, but it's a, a, um, a mindset issue, how do you begin to untangle that so that you can effectively use this ACT therapy? Yeah, um, I think maybe one of the first areas is to 
have them examine like what we call like the function of their um of maybe the problematic behavior um so whatever that they might be doing that's not working for them like having them like give for a second like give it the benefit of the doubt like um um not to say an athlete would be doing this but like this is just the 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 first example that comes to mind, like, let's say someone has like a, like an alcohol use problem. Um, and, you know, that's the thing that they want to address. And so part of like, um, looking at the function of the alcohol use is look, giving alcohol the benefit of the doubt and understanding that, yeah, alcohol is probably not the most helpful thing for them. And that's probably why they're here to see me, but, um, helping them understand like what function does alcohol serve for them? Um, and you know they might be able to realize that yeah well when i i get when i get stressed like alcohol helps numb that um alcohol helps me get through the day um and so in a lot of ways alcohol is functional um even though it can be unhelpful and you know dysfunctional in other areas so helping them see like the the purpose of their behaviors and then also reflecting like is this purpose or function is it still working for you today um you know i like to use another metaphor is like i like people to think about um i ask them if like let's say they have windows and you know ask them like hey if you had a copy of windows 95 you know would you would you still use that operating system today and then most people would say like no like it wouldn't be able to do everything that i needed to do It'd be super slow um and so we acknowledge that yeah you know so when when there's a new operating system on your computer, you you learn to be able to like update and let go of the previous operating system. And so we can do that with like our coping strategies too, in the sense that we acknowledge like what's no longer working and being willing to let that go um, to, to try a different strategy that might be more present for today or might be relevant for today. So let's 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 kind of roll with the 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 role of alcohol because alco actually alcoholism and substance abuse are um, really important and, and pervasive problems in the legal field. If I've understood you, it's kind of acknowledge why you're using it, and you know it could be kind of it has a sedative effect, it's calming, but then also realizing has it gone beyond that. And is it now no longer serving its function, but actually impairing function and then helping find a replacement that's maybe healthier or different to achieve that same sort of calming effect? Right. Yeah. So if maybe the, the reason why you started using alcohol was um, to, yeah, to deal with that overwhelming level of stress. Um, but knowing that alcohol, sure, it helps you get rid of that stress, but then it causes other things looking to see are there other things I can do for myself to deal with that overwhelming sense of stress. So as you work with people on issues like that, how does it intersect with the notion that certain mental health issues are actually diseases? Alcoholism is a disease, substance abuse is a disease, clinical depression can be a, a, a disease of the brain. How do, and I understand you'd, you'd probably work in conjunction with a, a psychiatrist or other um, type of treatment provider, but how does the, the ACT framework inters provide a component of the modality of dealing with a disease? You know, um, 
And, and I think in general, like the, the act is still, the broad principles are still the same, whether you're dealing, whether you're working with someone that's going through like relatively minor mental health concerns to those that are dealing with more severe mental health concerns. Um, we're still working on the same skills, um, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's going to take a little bit more, um, more reflection and more repetition for those that are going through um, more severe mental health concerns. And then you're right, yeah, if it does get to more severe mental health concerns, then that's when, um, yeah, we would, we would consider enlisting the help of like psychiatrists and, you know, utilizing uh, medication management in addition to, to therapy. Um, and, um, you know, like a, a metaphor that I tend to use with looking at that relationship is, and, and, and I would welcome any psychiatrist to, um, that to, to criticize this metaphor, maybe this isn't the best metaphor, but, you know, one way to think about it is like when, you know, learning to swim, like if, um, you know, if someone like just pushed you into the water to teach you how to swim and let's say I pushed you into the water and I'm like telling you like, Hey, you know, kick your legs and, uh, you know, move your arms like this. Um, when you're trying to just like scramble just to get to the surface, you're probably not going to be able to like, you know, be very receptive to the things that I say or be able to like, you know, um, yeah, to listen. Um, and so medication can be a way to, to kind of like that life jacket, like it can kind of help you stay at the surface um, and be there without panicking that you're going to drown. Um, and then counseling then can be that instruction of like, okay, now that you're, you're in a more you know, stable place. Like here are the things that you can work on to get yourself to a point where you don't know, you maybe no longer need the life jacket. So the traditional treatment modalities can be a good complement or, or actually inverse. The kind of skills you're trying to teach can be a good complement to the treatment modalities for the different issues given their... Yeah, yeah. Another way to look at it too is kind of like cutting a weed, you know, so in a way medication can help, um, you know, you can, you can cut a weed, but then the weed will grow back unless you get the root of it. And so medication in a way can help address the symptoms. Um, but maybe the, the root of the symptoms won't go away purely from medication. So counseling can help uncover like, okay, why, why is the depression symptoms? Why are the, the anxiety symptoms occurring at the source? What are some of the types of athletes and performers that you work with? Yeah, um, so and I know you were a swimmer in a prior life. <laughs> right, right. As was uh, my son. Oh, yeah, yeah. Swimming is it's such an interesting sport. I remember as a kid, I was thinking like, why, why am I doing a sport where I'm just like beating myself up like day in, day out? Like, why couldn't I play a game? Not to say like sports like football or basketball, even though they're a game, doesn't mean that they're easy. But in my mind at that time, I was like, like, I'm just just training my body and all of this. Um, and it just, it, it sucks a lot of times, but, uh, but yeah, I, I grew up, you know, grew up as a swimmer and, um, and as much as like, I'm, I'm, you know, subtly bashing the sport right now, it, it did, you know, give me a good sense of like, I did like the competition of it. And it did give me a good sense of like work ethic, um, both in, you know, school and career, as well as like exercise as an adult. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the people that I work with primary, you know, I've only been in private practice for about um, about a year at this point. And before going into private practice, like most of my experience had been in um, college mental health and also university athletics. Um, so 
most of my experience I've been working with adults um, and you know NCAA Division One college student athletes. Um, but since going into private practice, um, a lot of more people that I've been uh, working with have been children, adult, usually like adolescents, so roughly um, 10 years old and up. Um, so adolescents, teens, and adults. And, and yeah, and like I said, I, I do work with people that purely just want more mental health, um, want to address more mental health concerns and those that want to address both and those that want to address purely sport performance concerns. Is there a difference in sort of approach for an athlete that's doing something highly individual, such as swimming, and an athlete that's part of a team sport? Are there different sort of things that you consider potentially different tools that you use um, because the pressures could be different, or at least some of the pressures could be different? Yeah, I mean, there are there are subtle differences and maybe not sometimes not so subtle um, and context is an important thing to take to take into account, um, as well as like the team culture. Um, you know, there's a different culture for, you know, football teams versus like a swim team. Um, and and yeah, you know, swimmers, uh, as you can imagine, or, you know, track and field athletes, more individualistic sports like, yeah, there is a little bit more pressure on themselves. And in a lot of ways, sometimes that's that maybe that can be a little bit easier because at the very least, if they make a mistake, like, you know, they can be okay with like disappointing themselves. But when it comes to like, you know, being on a team and feeling the pressure and not wanting to disappoint others, that can be an added stressor um, or the flip or the flip side of it. Like someone that's in an individual sport can feel a lot more pressure because everything is, is on them and they don't necessarily have the support of a, you know, a traditional team as we might think of it. Um, and, um, and yeah, they're all, there's probably like social differences as well. Um, and as far as the, the strategies that I use, I would say for the most part, it is, it is pretty much the same. Um, again, we are, you know, I'm still addressing like thoughts and I'm still addressing um, acceptance of emotions and things that you can control, things you can't control um, and goal setting. And those are, again, I don't want to make this statement that they're always the same regardless of sport. And again, culture plays um, plays a plays a role. Um, but a lot of times I think what I, the strategies I do still stay relatively the same. So that you, you, you're segueing into an issue that I think is is important because a lot of the discussion on mental health in the legal profession, there's been, there's starting to be a shift, but there's been a lot of discussion around what I would call the cult or the myth of self-care mm. and the, the myth that by doing the right things, lawyers in high pressure situations can function in a healthy way. But the, the topic that's beginning to really come to the surface is, can there aren't, aren't there limits to what they're able to achieve if the culture of the firm isn't appropriately dialed into what its athletes need, its intellectual athletes need to thrive? Yeah, yeah. Certainly there are a lot of... Um things that can be frustrating like when when myself or other counselors or therapists like they're working with someone at an individual level but knowing that sometimes 
the things that we're working on can only have so much impact when when things up higher above that individual are are not in congruence. Um, I mean, you can even see this in a in a more simplistic sense of like a system of like a family. You know, when you're working with a kid, um, but maybe even though you might be teaching strategies how to deal with stress when maybe things with parents aren't coinciding with that, yeah, it can make the work a lot more difficult. So I can imagine same thing in an organization when um, when there could be potential problems from leadership um, that are trickling down into the actual employees um, or the uh, intellectual athletes that, yeah, it can make the work a lot harder, um, put a lot of obstacles in the way. For example, I think, you know, when you talk about athletes, you know, sports athletes, isn't there sort of an acknowledgement that in order to thrive, you need waves of rest and recovery? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is a general, yeah, you know, self-care, having like times of understanding that you can't always be at 100%, 120%, that there are waves of times to, to pull back and times to pull forward. Yeah. And I think if you were to say, you know, look at a law firm that expects its attorneys to work an absurd amount of hours and always be on 24 hours, much like an athlete at some point, aren't they likely to hit a wall? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, I was working with, uh, with someone recently and, you know, he, you know, he's a hardworking person in his sport and he, he very much like, very much, uh, takes pride in giving like that hundred percent, 120 percent. And, and, but, you know, he was recently talking about like how he's, he was having a hard time, like lately in the season, um, giving that hundred percent and it, he's just kind of showing up, going through the motions. And so one kind of tentative approach that we had is that maybe it's okay that right now, especially it's kind of like end of the year for him. And, um, you know, maybe right now it's okay to, to be at this 70, 80%, knowing that you know, you literally can't, you literally can't keep the engine going at hundred percent all the time. So it seems to me like that's a, that's a, that potentially requires for folks like, for our intellectual athletes, a recognition from them that they're not always going to be in peak state and a recognition from the people that manage them, that their expectation that they always will be in peak state aren't realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also in sports, there's this concept of periodization and right. Periodic training, right? You right. break down yeah, and then you rest to build up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a lot of we can, we can view that in the same thing when it comes to like mental exertion. So the, I guess my point is, is that these elements of periodic training and this acknowledgement that folks can't continue to perform under pressure for an extended duration without a break is acknowledged a lot of times in athletics, but it can apply well outside of athletics. Absolutely. And I feel like this is something that in a way, like human society is known for like the longest time. It's just hard to realize sometimes, you know, what's that phrase? Like you can't keep the candle burning on both ends. Um, can't burn the candle on both ends. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think it's something that we all kind of just know, but we can kind of lose sight of when we're actually doing that or when we're actually putting that on our, our athletes or our performers. So if you were brought in, let's say to advise a law firm 
that was having issues with attorney burnout, attrition. What kind of guidance or, or suggested framework might you propose to help them create an environment where maybe that's less likely to happen? Let's say you, just like you were brought in, let's say to work with a sports team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so one, I think I would, I would have them kind of looking at that functional purpose of things, like helping them see like, what is it that they can control, what they can't control. So looking at like, you know, if, if there is like this culture of like pushing, pushing their employees and their performers to like such a high extent like asking them like is this getting you what you're what you're wanting or is this bringing also things that you're you're not wanting um so helping them just be reflective of like going back to that operating system is this operating system working for you um and then yeah and i would also like have them pay attention or have them explore like what how are you reinforcing um your employees, how are you communicating with them? Um, are, are you focusing more on issues with your employees' behaviors or are you maybe criticizing their, their sense of character? Um, and, you know, wanting them to do more of the former, like address behaviors um, rather than, you know, criticizing the character of their employees. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. There's just there's so much like individualized there, things you could do. There, there certainly are a lot of variables, but one thing I think I picked up from what you just said is, um, are you devaluing the person in terms of attributing character attributes because they can't necessarily perform at 100% all the time? That's kind of an important question to ask. Is your ex expectations reasonable and are your are your judgments about performance ultimately corrosive to 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 the human because you're 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 basically impugning their character? Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to like address like, you know, um, hey, these projects weren't done by this time versus attacking the character of like this person must be not not hardworking, lazy, not serious the reason I, I i'm kind of poking at this a little bit is within the legal profession and any profession really there is a lot of discussion about millennials you know gen z um what they expect whether or not they're mentally tough whether or not they're unrealistic in wanting work-life balance but one of the things i've come to think about is there are fundamental issues about culture that impact performance that really don't matter what generation you're in. Yeah, can you tell me, what do you mean by that? Well, just because someone needs rest and recovery and they're a millennial doesn't mean millennials aren't ambitious. It means a 60 year old man could need the same thing, maybe afraid to say it or ask for it, but those aren't generational specific things. Maybe the willingness to articulate it is, Right. But the principles of performance um, are the same. To be a high performer, you need a certain level of rest and recovery, balance, certain level of mental coping techniques, and the right culture. It's been kind of characterized as a, as a demographic issue, but I don't see it that way. 
Yeah, I mean, we are a product of our of the time we grew up in and our society and culture. And and I don't know, I feel like it, this is a cyclical thing. Like every generation has always judged the prior generation. And um, and that's just the thing. And then that generation grows up and that judges the the prior generation, the younger generation and so on and so forth. So I think maybe sometimes it's just harder for us to get out of our um, out of our own perspectives and being able to see at the ground level what it's like for for um, for someone that is yeah um, in a different generation, but the principles of 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 helping people achieve like the right skills to perform optimally aren't really generational. Those are those are those are skill sets, mindsets, um, and, and tools, techniques that really are sort of part and parcel of developing high performing human beings. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that's that's one thing where I think this discussion about uh, the different demographics attitudes towards work don't necessarily hold up because someone who who expresses the need for a certain amount of um, disconnectedness from work or untethered time isn't necessarily a product of their generation. It's almost like they're being more honest about what they need to perform at a high level, whereas yeah i mean if anything i still might i still might argue that it is a little bit of the product of generation in the sense that i think people now in this generation have been grown up in a society where mental health is more normalized and more able to talk about uh so but yeah but in the in the sense not to say someone you know um who's older didn't go through the same things maybe they, they just didn't grow up in that society where it was more welcome to talk about mental health and to use mental health as a as as a as a factor for how they're performing yeah i think that's a great perspective is that many of the issues are the same but now they're being articulated better yeah i could argue that too by by potentially the people you see and work with and the in the in the kinds of people you might see if you were working with you know, these high performing intellectual athletes that that the problems aren't necessarily different. It's it's the willingness in a, um, to express express those problems. Yeah, I think it, it makes sense to think that someone who's like 60 years old um, still feels like stress, depression, anxiety, just like someone who's, you know, in their 20s can experience that. But yeah, there's a different relationship now with those with those feelings than and different generations possibly. What are your sort of key takeaways that you're you, you kind of like your go-tos um, when you're working with an athlete, like, and you want to get them to a higher level of performance? What are sort of like the best tools in your tool set? Understanding that some of that's very individualized. Yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the more common things is talking about um, this idea of like process versus outcomes. Um, and so for, for any performer, whether an athlete or non-athlete, like, you know, using, we're, we're, a lot of us are drawn to outcomes, like outcomes of like in sports, like winning the game, um, getting first place, getting a, a personal record. Um, and we, we might get driven to those things and that helps boost our confidence. Um, but the problem, though, with focusing too much on outcomes is that outcomes are things that, you know, a lot of people might that might 
you know, argue against this initially, but outcomes are things that we can't control. You know, an, an athlete can't control winning the game. Like there's, there's so many factors that get in the way of that. Like the athlete can't control the other team, how they play. The athlete can't necessarily control their coaches or their teammates. They can't control refs. They can't control the weather. They can't control not getting injured. Um, sure, there are certain things you can do, but ultimately those things are beyond your control. Um, and as a result, when we focus on things that we, we ultimately can't control, that boosts pressure, that boosts anxiety, um, and, and it lowers confidence. And so instead of focusing on the things that we can't control, such as outcomes, we control on things that we call like process. I like to call it like process tasks or process goals. And process tasks are the things that you can control that can influence an outcome, but they don't guarantee an outcome. So can you give some examples of those process controls or process tasks? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for a ba- like a basketball player, like they, you know, shoot, making, making, a, making a shot or scoring is an outcome. It's not something they can ultimately control. They can't control like how their defender plays against them. They, so, but a process task for a basketball player is, um, and it, it varies, but it could be like, hey, bend my knees. If I bend my knees, that increases the likelihood of making this shot. Um, follow through, follow through with my shot, lean into the shot, uh, flick my wrist. And if I do those things, those are the things that will help increase the likelihood of me making the shot. Um, and the athlete may find when they're focusing on something they can control, they can control bending their knees, they can control um, leaning into the shot. Um, that has a different set that gives a different flavor to their confidence and sense of control versus trying to control something like an outcome. Um, you know, for like a, like a, like a student, like they might be focused on the outcome of like, I need to get an A. Again, they can't ultimately control that, but what they can control is like, uh, tonight I can control getting in my three hours of studying. I can control making sure I'm taking breaks. I can control like, uh, reaching out to my professors or my teachers when I need help. Um, those are also process tasks. That's, I think, a great way of um, breaking it down. There are things we can do to prepare. There are techniques and skills we can develop. But understanding the the outcome isn't guaranteed is, I think, a really important concept. Yeah. And that goes back into to act and acceptance, like acceptance that as much as we want to think we can control like an outcome, that being able to have acceptance that we outcomes will come whether we like them or not. Um, and it's more about how do we respond to those situations rather than preventing bad outcomes from happening. I think that that, you know, can readily be applicable to the legal profession in that we can't always can't always predict how a court will rule. Mm-hmm. We can't always make law that doesn't exist. What we can do is, you know, perfect the fundamentals of writing, perfect our research skills, work on our reasoning skills, understanding though that we may do everything that that we've been trained to do and we've practiced really well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person reading your work product is going to like it. Right. or that a tribunal is going to rule your way, or that, you know, there are external variables such as a change in the economy or a change in principal actors on the opposing side might not completely disrupt the variables, even if you've done everything right. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, for any performer, it can be easy to fall into like performance as a recipe. Like if I if I go in, if I put in this many hours into studying, if I put this many hours in practice, if I listen to coach and I do all these things, I should get my desired outcome. And so part of that is being more flexible with that idea that do those things because they do increase the likelihood, but understanding that you can do all those things and it's not going to necessarily poof, create the thing that you want. It's really an anecdote for the, for the myth of perfection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Michael Jordan missed something like nine thousand shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, perfection of it, as, as you know, can be very rampant when it comes to performers. And yeah, um, oh, I was going to mention. Do we have some time? I have. A, there's yes. another another skill that I often work on with. Um, work on is like just working on dealing with thoughts and thoughts. Thoughts. Yeah, and. In ACT, we call this like diffusion. Um, so the opposite of fusion, which is coming together. So diffusion, like separating. Um, and you could argue that, you know, we all have a variety of thoughts, like thoughts that are helpful, thoughts that are unhelpful, thoughts that are pretty, thoughts that are ugly, and thoughts in between. And the problem isn't having like bad thoughts or negative thoughts. Um, the problem comes from when we get... Um, when we get fused to a thought or we get stuck on a thought. Um, and so part of the goal is to work on defusing or maybe another way to look at it is unhooking from a thought and getting distance and looking at it with flexibility and perspective. Right. I, I, I read a book recently called Getting to Neutral, mm. which is taking an event, getting to a place where you have neutral thinking about the event so you can then focus on what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds very, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. That seems compatible with what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it also sounds very, you know, similar to ideas of like stoicism. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that. Um, being able to view things without that emotional valence sometimes. And I want to be careful too, because like, we don't want to get into this idea that emotions are bad. Um, but in some ways, it's helpful to view emotions from a, from a, a neutral perspective. Um, and same thing with thoughts, be able to view thoughts from a neutral perspective to understand that thoughts are thoughts. They're not truth tellers. They're right. not facts. Um, they're stories. They're really our, our mind's way of trying to make sense of the world. But understanding that our mind only has so much information to make sense of the world. And thus, there's a lot of room for thoughts to be fallacies or to be incorrect. And, and in reality, it's not just negative thoughts. It's, it's irrationally being enthusiastic, irrational enthusiasm. It can go either way. Those thoughts can be a runaway freight train, whether they're negative thoughts or overly positive thoughts, right? Yeah. Well, you know, using that, that what you said about like the thoughts being like a runaway freight train. So, um, so the idea here is to, if it is a runaway freight train to, um, to let the, the freight train come through your mind without grabbing onto it. So act is very much based in mindfulness. So a lot of things that we're talking about, like acceptance, um, being flexible with thinking, um, hopefully to your, your listeners that are familiar with mindfulness, like this should also kind of ring a bell. Yes, I think, I think it does. And I think it will. Dr. Yu, thank you so much for coming on and um, talking to um, a lawyer about, you know, 
how you work with athletes and other folks and the principles of performance so that we can begin to draw some corollaries. I appreciate you making yourself available. Um, we always give our guests an opportunity to talk about where they can be found. Um, should anyone want to reach out or you know seek help or, or connect with them? Can you share your uh, contact information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can you you can contact me through my website, which is um, prevailperformance.com. Uh, my practice name is Prevail Performance Counseling, PLLC. Um, but again, my website is prevailperformance.com. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. Like my updating on that can sometimes be a little spotty, but uh, my both my Twitter and my Instagram handles are Prevail Perform. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I look forward to um, maybe talking to you again in the future. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.